Welcome to the Business Addicts Podcast, where the stakes are high, talk is cheap, and results are on the other side of commitment. Hosted by a former addict, myself, and I'm his wife, Jamie. We uncover addicts' mindsets, showing that the talents you've created in your struggle will be the superpowers you leverage to heal your deepest wounds. Listen to former addicts share stories of how they've flipped the switch, including insights into how much we can believe in ourselves. For those of you affected by addiction, we support your desire to help the addict in your life by raising the stakes and creating emotional barriers. Welcome back to the Business Addicts Podcast. I'd like to welcome Michael to the podcast. Michael Lancaster is, uh, well, he's going to tell you about himself in a, here in a little bit, and then we'll get into what he's doing today at the end of the podcast. And So Michael, help us understand who you are. Often I say, you know, start with childhood because we just kind of need to get a feel like we don't know you from anyone on the street. We need to get a feel of where you came from. What did you love when you were a kid? That kind of thing. So I grew up in a couple of states. So I grew up mostly in the 70s and the high school years were in the 80s. And my dad purchased a business and then I recall... And I, and I share the story quite, quite a bit about when my parents got divorced. Okay. Yeah. Dates are kind of iffy, but I do recall living in our home in, uh, Bucks County. It was a split level home. So the stairs were really short. So my mom gra- gathered all of us and we sat on the stairs and she proceeded to tell us that they were getting a divorce. And I, and I tell the story for a couple of reasons, because I recall in my head thinking, so what, you know, my dad worked, he was a workaholic. He was very successful at what he did and was rarely around. Um, he did take us to a lot of the Philadelphia sporting events. We went to the Phillies games a lot. And, uh, we had season tickets when I, I remember when I was a kid and went to the 80 world series and she proceeded to explain that they were going to divorce and we were going to move to New Mexico. I, I, to this day, I have no idea. My mom passed away from Alzheimer's in 2014. And mm-hmm. so I really never got a clear indication as to why we were moving to New Mexico. So we, so you, you didn't know, have family down there or any, any no, logical reason you just up and moved. No family there. passed, you know, the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so we get out there and to this day, I still can't, figure out all the logistics because my memories are, you know, here and there, and they're just snippets of what, what the life was there. But I do recall my, um, my brother and I spent a lot of time together alone. So one, I didn't know where my mother was most of the time. My older sister was non-existent as well. It's, it's a part of my life that you know, good year of my life, I don't know too much about, except for playing in the backyard. Towards the end of that year, my dad came back, and apparently my mom did tell this story. Uh, he apologized, and they remarried. And when they remarried, we moved to New Jersey. I did not see that coming. No. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. So we moved to New Jersey in Cherry Hill, and that's where I spent a good chunk of my middle school and high school years. Then that lasted about a year and a half, and they got divorced again. We moved down the street across into another neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. So, this is like whiplash. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you can, you can tell that growing up, there's going to be some parent issues for me. I was uh, starting my junior year and I had a good friend. His name is David and we'd hang out a lot. We'd ride our bikes everywhere. Skateboard was the thing to do back then. We'd, you know, ride our bikes up to the Wawa and get some food or a 7-Eleven with a big gulp. And then one night he had me over to his place and he had this idea, let's drink some alcohol. His parents were away that evening. And of course, you know, in this home, they had a giant liquor cabinet. We went straight to the hard stuff and started drinking it. And I distinctly remember after leaving his house, that was the coolest thing ever. You know, growing up in, in my religious beliefs, we refrain from alcohol and tobacco and drugs. So I had this conflict going on where on one end, I know I'm not supposed to do that for obvious reasons because it's unhealthy. And two, it's part of my core beliefs. And so at the time, I should have said no. You know, all my teachings tell me say no. But, you know, in our church, they don't force you to do anything. You have that free agency to choose Mm-hmm. what you want to do or follow or obey. And if you don't want to participate, you can leave. No one's going to shut you down or keep you from leaving in that regards. But I chose to do it. And what ended up happening for the next couple of years is me getting drunk on weekends at parties. And during that time, you know, using my artistic skills, I started uh, making fake IDs for kids in, in high school. Wow. Now this is back. This is back as if you if you recall, on your driver's license today. If you kind of tilt it, there's like this kind of like hologram on it, to, to some degree. I forget what they call it, but it it ina- disables you from relettering the letters with Letraset, and then relaminating, which is what I did, and I was very skillful at it. So I would re-etch the entire type that's on a license, and then laminate it but the first thing you had to do you had to go down to the dmv and say i lost my license because you need the real one along with the fake one so if you get pulled over and you show the fake one you're gonna get busted so you know twenty dollars a pop i'm making pretty good money in high school and we would use those fake ids and go over the bridge into philadelphia and bar hop you know i'm a junior in high school senior in high school bar hopping on weekends and you know i'm not saying everything i did in high school was bad but we did have some good friendships and fun times together. Not always necessarily, you know, involved alcohol. But the reason why we did the fake ID is because then we can go down to Camden, which was a, a more rough neighborhood. And um, most of the time they didn't card. And if they did, you just said, eh, it's in my car. And they'd give you the alcohol anyway because they wanted to make money. So that's how we got a lot of our alcohol and things like that. Hmm. But what I, what I did notice over time is that I was getting to a point where when I drank a certain amount, I was getting um, blackouts and I was getting a little disruptive and violent. And, it, and as we know in the program, we, re, we figure out why that is happening, which then causes us to drink in the fourth step. So I'm recalling, you know, one incident where I drove this you know, Beater Dotson, which is now Nissan. It was a four door. It was two tone blue. And it was, uh, it was a five speed. So we were driving around and my friend John loved driving it because, you know, 
it was stick and he drove an automatic and he was learning how to drive stick and I was teaching him. So one night we were drinking and stuff and John wasn't a really big drinker and, and I was in the passenger seat and we were in our neighborhood and I, I was out and then I just woke up and I said, everybody out of the car, John, get out of the car, pull over, give me the keys. And they proceeded as I walked around the front of the front of the car to stop me. And I, I got pretty violent and I eventually got the keys. He pushed me so hard that when I bumped up against the driver's side quarter panel, I dented it. And then I got the keys. I got back into the car and proceeded to drive off. And the next thing I know, I have a police officer slapping me on the face. Um, what had happened is my car was in a ditch in the same neighborhood, but in a ditch off the side of the road. And I was laying in the middle of the road. Um, I had urinated all over myself. It was extremely cold that night. And the officer was basically hitting me face, trying to get me to wake up. My brother told me this part of the story, which I wasn't familiar with because I'm out in the street. And he had said that the officers had come to the, ho the home and they needed my mom to identify me. Because, you know, your car, you got your plate and things like that, registration. So she came out and I had these brief snapshots of me yelling at her. Like just violently yelling at her, calling her all kinds of names. And I love my mother, but she was, she was very tough in her approach to parenting. And I then remember being in the back seat, handcuffed in the back seat of the car. Eventually my mom, I guess, worked things out and was able to get me home. I have no idea how the car got home. And my brother was telling me that if I, if the police officer had not found me, I probably would have frozen. So there's many incidences with my experience in my, you know, addiction that there's, there's no reason for me to be a home, uh, be alive. And, um, the other, ex uh, uh, story I'd like to tell is the last time I used, which was May 28, 1987. I had come home from partying with a bunch of friends and uh, blacked out, went into the kitchen. And the only reason why they know this is because they found the evidence of what I had done. And I went into what we had then, a, a medicine cut. My mom kept the medicine cabinet in the kitchen. And I proceeded to take every pill from every bottle. Now, when I was a kid, I got sick and my mom took me to the doctor and they prescribed penicillin. And, uh, and I had a huge major reaction from that. And to this day, I'm supposed to wear a bracelet and, you know, and all these things that says I cannot have it at all. It's, it can kill me. I proceeded and took every, every pill that was in that cabinet, all the prescription pills, and then went to bed. Next morning I wake up, I couldn't move. I could barely function. I rolled out of the bed onto the floor proceeded to crawl to my mother's room, which was down the hall from mine. My brother had to come and pick me up and put me back in the bed. And then we had some good family friends that were, um, he was a surgeon. So he came over and proceeded to look at the pills and look at me. And he says, we need to get to the ER right now. Um, so I get to the ER and of course they're gonna give you this black substance. It's basically charcoal. I think it's what they call it. It's gritty. It's disgusting. What it basically does is make you throw up everything in your stomach. So I proceeded to throw up. Um, I discovered later 
months later that my mom said that all the pills that I had taken out of the cabinet, the ones that were left had penicillin. So how did that ever happen? I don't know. Someone was looking out for me. And, um, um, so the police officers had to show up because this is the third time I show up in the ER with an overdose. And, um, and there's, you know, at the time there were rules and laws, I guess, pertaining to the state of New Jersey. And he basically told my mom, you can do one or two things. I can arrest him and he can go to you know, jail because I was 18 at the time or get him help. So we proceeded to get help and we drove around New Jersey looking at detoxes in place. And some of them were just awful, you know, and I'm, I'm coming out of this whole drunkenness and jacked up on these pills and, and, um, eventually we landed in, in a, in a treatment center in North Jersey called Hampton hospital. And, um, we started the procedure procedures to go into treatment and they told my mom and explained to her that since I was 18, I had to make this decision. She couldn't legally, uh, put me into this facility. I had to make that decision. And I remember everybody leaving the room and it was a big table. I remember the table and it was dark in there and it was not a whole lot of windows. And there's this piece of paper and a pen sitting there on the table. And I was like, you know, I don't, I mean, I think I have a problem. You know, looking back, I would have told myself, you have a major problem, but you know, I, I, I can't believe I just actually had to think about this whole thing, but you know, 18 teenager, I'm stupid. And I signed it and I admitted it was admitted into the treatment center. And it was difficult for me because I wasn't 18 and I wasn't technically adult because I was still in high school. It was my senior year in high school, which I spent this last six weeks of high school in treatment. I missed my graduation. I missed a lot of things. I missed the senior trip to Disney world. And so I um, was there, I think about a week. No, it was about three days. It was three days, three days. And back then they had these, these uh, pay phones along one of the walls in the common area. Um, so I called my mom collect cause that's what you did back then. Cause we didn't have cell phones. And I, I basically told my mom, I said, Hey mom, I'm not, I don't belong here. Can you come pick me up? And all she said was, no, I love you. And she hung up. Good for her. And, um, and then I'm like, how do I do? Then I started asking questions like, how do I get out of here? And one of the people, and it's based on me with what they would call, um, a facilitator or something, while working there because they had some of the more medical staff during the day. And in the evenings they had people that worked there to kind of help out with anything that you were you know, struggling with. And they were all addicts themselves. So it was, it was a good, it was a good program that they had there. And, um, I, I started talking to someone. It's like, I don't think I belong here. How do I get out here? He goes, well, you can fill out this paper. It's called a 72, which means you give the, you know, the psychologist, psychiatrist 72 hours to assess your, you know, your situation. And so the following day he came to visit cause they would come visit your rooms. You had a roommate and they, he would come in and say, how are you doing today? Blah, blah, blah. And, and, he, and then he goes, um, I see you signed a 72. Well, let me tell you how that works. First, they're going to ask me, what do I think? And if I think you're a threat to yourself or others, 
I can get the state of New Jersey to court commit you here. And you could be here six months. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now, back up. I'll, I'll, I'll work your little program. <laughs> I don't want to be stuck here for six months or a year. So I said, no, I'll, I'll work the program. And, I, and, I, and thank God I did. Um, six weeks, you know, I get out. I got a, a good amount of treatment. Worked with a lot of great people. Hard therapy, really hard therapy. You know, did the step work discovered why I drank. I was angry at my parents and the divorce, but I didn't think I was angry because like I said earlier, my dad was not there. So it's basically mom. But I think, you know, over time and throughout my life to this point where I'm much older, um, I I recognize I have abandonment issues and -hmm. it's not necessarily from my father. You would think, oh, well, that's obvious. He's got abandonment issues because his dad was out of the picture. No, it was from my mother. She wasn't a very good communicator. She didn't show a lot of love and embrace and coddling and things like that. So that is another form of abandonment where you can have your parent in your life. Yeah, emotional abandonment. Yeah, so I I struggled with that, and then I recognized that through the treatment. And then I got out, took a year and worked with some friends in Delaware, laying cable TV into people's neighborhoods, and decided to go to college and went out to college for a year, came back. And then in our, in our church, we, we have the choice to serve what we call missions. And for, for the men, it's two years. And I was never planning on doing it, but my brother was eight up. He's like, I'm going. So, um, you know, I was around a lot of good people that were good friends while I was in college and, and suggested I should do that because I went to a church school and, um, uh, decided to do that. And, I was called to serve in Brazil. So I was down in South America for two years. And so that would put me in about you know, second or third year of my recovery. I was in South America learning Portuguese and teaching people about, you know, the savior and things like that. And uh, totally enjoyed it. It was probably one of the best two years of my life. I, I matured quite a bit. I came back within a year and a half later, I found someone, I got married, um, had. Uh, and was four, she in the same faith? Yes. Yes, she was. And, um, we got married, had four kids. Um, a recruiter eventually brought me to Kentucky. So I've been here for, you know, almost 22 years, but in 2006, she decided she had other plans and wanted a divorce. And then later I found out that she was having an affair with another guy that she worked at the YMCA. And, um, you know, that kind of destroyed me some degree. I stayed strong for about two years. And um, while freelancing um, in my in my profession as an art director in advertising, I had to get a job, like a real job, because I have kids to support. You know, I had finances, but, you know, medical coverage was difficult to obtain while I'm not being self-employed. And so I eventually landed a job in Columbus, Ohio, I was up there for two years, and in uh, 2006, right around the NBA Finals, and the only reason why I know that is because the the Miami Heat was in it, and and Miami was crazy at the time, and our company decided to have an all-inclusive training in uh, Coconut Grove, you know, near Miami Beach, and I was like, I don't want to go to this, and they essentially said if you didn't go, you'd be fired. So we all had to go because a good chunk of us didn't want to go. 
for three days to sit down in Miami. And I'm thinking that's just going to be a drunken mess and party situation with some training sprinkled in, you know, you know, clearly the hotel's nice, very expensive. And I'm thinking that's another reason why I don't want to go because I'd rather have that money in my pocket than you to dump, you know, a hundred grand on a quote training, you know, trip. Yeah. Okay. So hold a second. Let's, I'm going to just try to catch up for myself. There was, your first recovery started in 87, I think you said, right? Mm-hmm. And then there yeah. was a few years of recovery, like where you did your mission trip too. And there's a lot of growth mm-hmm. there, it sounds like. Yeah. Then you got married. I got married in 93. Okay. Uh, 92, 92, sorry, April 92. We were separated from 2003 to 2006. All right. So now I'm caught up. And then then during that process, you prior to that, you were, you had your own business, uh, it sounds like. But then... As part of the divorce or separation process, you went and got a job. And then yeah. that, that job said you had to attend this training in Miami. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was working in, a, in another ad agency in Columbus um, from 2004 to 2006. And, um, of course, like, like you just said, we, we had to go to this training in Miami. And, in fact, I didn't want to be there so bad. I told them. I want the first flight out of there at sun, on Sunday. And they're like, well, that's like at 5 a.m. And I'm like, I don't care. I want to get out of there right away as soon as I can. So I get down there the first night, you know, of course, it's a party. And then I get up the next morning. I'm at the first part of the training. And I'm kind of seeing people roll into the room. And they're kind of hungover. And and I'm just thinking, man, I, I don't, you know, I'm glad I'm not dealing this, this with that. This isn't my gig. I, no. I, you didn't and feel I'm, good. Your your gut feeling from the beginning was just, this doesn't work for me. I'm. Do you feel like you kind of felt like there was, there was a lot going on for you and you just didn't need this one more thing to... I mean, what would you say your emotional state was before that? I mean, just in your in your divorce or separation process. You know, obviously, the first thing you feel is, you know, hurt and sadness because your trust had been, you know, broken through that arrangement of being married. I know that today a lot of people think it's okay and it's fine to do that until it happens to you. And yeah, and then, and especially with someone that you actually do love, you know, if you didn't love that person, you know, maybe my feelings would be different, but you know, I did care about her and I did, I did want the relationship. In fact, I kind of fought for it regardless of the fact that she was doing this, but she didn't want anything of it. She wanted to move on. She wanted to basically rid herself of this marriage and, and, and go for that, you know, picket fence and nice, nicer situation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people joke about, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, so, so is the water bill. It's a yeah. <laughs> lot more expensive, so you 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 have to pay to to get that right. And so, you know, I'm I'm struggling with all these emotions. I'm missing my kids. That was probably the biggest thing. What she didn't yeah, expect, okay. she expected me to be like my dad and just abandon them and say, "Oh, I'm I'm rid of this. You know, good. I don't have to take care of my kids or spend any time with them." But what she didn't plan on is me being you know, super high focused on that because of my situation with my dad. And I did yeah. love my kids and I, and I do love my kids to this day. They're all adults now, but it's like, I, I would drive from Columbus to Cincinnati. It's about an hour and 
want to say an hour. It's been a while. It's an hour, 20 minutes, hour, 40 minutes, back and forth on a Friday and a Sunday every weekend for two years just to see them. Wow. And, um, you know, I was dedicated. And I think she wanted me to just disappear out of the picture. And then she could start this whole new family. And it didn't work out. So she was angry and made the situation even more difficult. So imagine I'm up there trying to su- support the family, the kids, providing with the medical coverage, make some income, give her some income and see my kids and all of this with her being like angry and, and verbally abusive to me and, and difficult to, to get along. And then I'm going on this trip. I, I don't want to be on, I want to focus on trying to get back to Kentucky. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be this far away from it. It was literally four hours away and Cincinnati was about the halfway point. And so, you know, I got all this going through my head and, and I didn't really like the people so much. There was a writer I, I got along with really well that we were teamed up together, but I didn't really like the people there so much. So it was just a little shallow for you, at least that particular organization. There was like, there wasn't as much connection as you were used to, that kind of thing? No, because in my mind, I was thinking at any moment that I could possibly get out of here, I'm taking it. <laughs> so, so I'll show up every day, do what I'm told to do, do the best of what I do. And if someone calls me and says, hey, you want to come back and live here? I'll be like, okay. So... We're down in Miami uh, doing this training and, and I was in my room basically getting ready to, you know, prepare for the early flight out on Sunday. And a bunch of people actually invited me to go hang out with them the last night. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do it. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go. So we went to this little kind of, it wasn't very populated, but it was a small few tables with a, like a liquor bar stand slash kind of like in a building and they were selling these uh, slushies with, you know, mixed with alcohol and, you know, they're spinning around like you see at the Seven Eleven or circle K or whatever. But um, so they were like, come on in. I was hanging out with them. And then that, and then that thought came to my head, you know, it's, 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 it's remarkable when you read the big book, it's, it talks about, you know, he's, course it's really really old and he's i guess eating a steak and drinking milk i don't know who does that but i think think that's what it says and the thought came what if i put alcohol in this milk and i'm thinking that's disgusting (laughs) but i understand what he was saying because that's exactly what happened the thought came into my head and the next thing i know i'm at the counter and i'm going to order a drink and as you know and i'm keeping this you know pg it's the efforts and I had, I had a string of those going on. You know, you look at all the situations and circumstances in my life leading up to this point, I'm getting to the point where I just don't care, you know? And then there's a part that actually was trying to justify it. And the fact that I was a teenager and I didn't really have a problem, you know, I was just a teenager and I was partying and I was just enjoying life, you know? So there was that playing around in there. And so they had these really cool names for all these drinks. Right. And, uh, start reading all the drink names and the one that you know bullseyed me to it was uh call me a cab so you read you read that and you're thinking this thing has got everything it's loaded so of course i get that and i sit down with everybody and i start drinking it and and i'm like nothing's happening this sucks (laughs) maybe i'm cured I i can't get a buzz no more so 
I still keep drinking and drinking and drinking it. And all of a sudden I felt it. It was like, it just washed right through me. And, you know, I tell this a lot in my stories and some of my posts that I share online and through social media that no different than when I was on the stairs listening to my mother telling us about how she's getting divorced and me saying in my head, who cares? Well, this time it was, there you are, my old friend. And um, man, that hit me like, like, you know, when they say that you get sober and your addiction is doing push-ups, that's very true because where I had left off is where I had started again, almost 19 years of sobriety. And, you know, my program's weak at the time. I'm not doing or following what I know to, to do with tools and things that people have you know, suggested in those rooms and I had just let go and just didn't care anymore. And so remember I'm leaving Sunday, five o'clock in the morning. So I'm drinking, drinking, drinking. They start going to different bars. I'm going with them. People are buying drinks for everybody. I'm chug-a-lugging these things down. And, and then next thing I know, I'm dancing with people I don't even know. And I go walking back and I realize I don't know where the hotel is because I couldn't remember it because I'm trashed. And I finally got to the hotel. I laid down on the bed and I had forgot. Thank goodness I had forgotten. But thank goodness I had set it, the alarm to get up. Two hours later, the alarm goes off. And I'm downstairs. I'm trashed. And we get to the airport. I start slowly start to sober up on the plane ride home. I get to, the, to my uh, townhouse and crash on the bed and, and I get this phone call and it's one of the writers there. Uh, she calls me up and says, Hey, we're going to a bar tonight. You want to go? And I was like, yes. And for four and a half years, that, that was my every day. Um, it got pretty bad. I, I, you know, I got plenty of stories to share between in those four and a half years, but you know, we don't have, we don't have a lot of time to discuss all that, but things got pretty bad for me. And then on August 28th in 2010, after a really bad emotional drinking binge, I woke up and I was laying on my side and I can still, I can still see the color in the room. I can still see how bright it was. I, I know exactly what my position was when I had that thought come to my head, staring at the wall. I need to kill myself. And then that's when I got really real. And um, I started figuring out, well, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to make it happen. And I got to make sure everything's okay with my kids. And it scared me. You know, I've never, yeah. I've never gotten to that heavy. place. Yeah, I've never gotten to that place. I mean, people think about it, you know, if I was dead, things would be a whole lot easier, right? But never got to the part where I started planning it. Like that, mm-hmm. that's when it became, you know, scary for me. And uh, instead of trying to figure that out, I went to the computer and, you know, launched Yahoo or whatever, because it was 2010, and um, typed in, you know, closest AA meeting. And uh, there was one not too far from my house. It was on Monday. That was the next meeting. The other ones were pretty, pretty far drive. And, you know, to this day on a Saturday, I'm thinking, why didn't I go on on a Sunday? But it's all you know, in the past, and, and there's not a whole lot I can do about it, right? So I'm uh, showing up to the, to the meeting, 
it was in a Monday night, it was at a church and they were in the kind of in the basement area and I went in there and, you know, and I'm like, oh, this, this is really nice to be here. I'm with my peeps, you know, and they started going around. Anybody new to this meeting? Of course, I didn't raise my hand. Anybody new to A? I don't, I'm not new. And uh, there was a guy named Gus who was chairing the meeting that night. And he's pretty hardcore, still a staple in this area. And and I went up to him and I says, hey, do you, you have any other suggestions for some additional meetings that I could go to? you know, over, over the next week. And he did this look up and down and he's like, you got a job, <laughs> you homeless. It's like, no, I'm not, I got a job, dude. I'm not homeless. It's like, well, but, you know, that's, that's the stigma sometimes with the addiction that people misunderstand that, you know, I have a really good paying job. You know, I have a career and, you know, there's lawyers in these rooms. There's, you know, doctors and, construction people, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, variety of individuals that come into these rooms and they're not someone in a van down by the river, right? Yeah. I mean, I, we've been interviewing people all year. I'm not saying that we have tons of interviews, but still haven't, there's a whole lot of successful people that we've talked to. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, and I had a, I have a good experience because we're, we're running some focus groups down at the healing place for a business that we've started. And, um, and those are the people that come in with absolutely nothing. This is their last chance. And through donations and things like that, they're supplied clothes, shoes, and just about everything. And they get a bed to sleep in every night. And they, they, you know, are commissioned to work the program while they're there and they'll be there for a year or so. And then they have a transitional stage where they take them out of the, out of the treatment center into, you know, some kind of sober living or life. But yeah, I've, I've spent a considerable amount of time with those individuals and, and I, I lead those meetings going, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I mean, I've got a, I got a drinking problem, but I'm okay. You know, I got a job, I got a house, I got family and things like that. So, but, um, I was really pissed when he did that. I, I mean, I, I was like, but well, yeah, of course I do. So in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to tell that mother ever. <laughs> And show him I'm coming back. <laughs> and, I, you know, we can go through life thinking that things are coincidental, but they're not. For me, Gus had to be chairing that meeting that night for me to come back. So I believe and I'm a firm believer that God puts people in our lives in places to help us if we choose to, you know, take that opportunity and gift. And this was certainly a gift for me. It was... Uh, what we call a tender moment and it enabled me to burn a desire in me to, to, to fix this. And, and I also share with people about that year, that first year of recovery in 2010. And um, because I remember the treatment center, the first year, you know, the first six weeks there in that year, the recovery was work. It wasn't, you know, you know, clouds, cloud nine all day, you know, it was, it was nice. It was good. Um, but that is that year in 2010 was probably the hardest year of my sobriety I have ever faced. Um, and I still have the gold coins and they're in a, they're in a container in my bedroom. And, and my goal is to never get those coins again. Now I say never because it's a goal that I have, but from my experience of going back out and drinking after 19, I can tell you it's very possible and you have to work your program, whatever 
step work you do or whatever other type of treatment you're, you're, you're going through that it's critical to work that program and to utilize the tools that any organization that works and helps people in addiction, they're there because it works. And I know it works because, you know, this last August, it came up on 12 years. And I always told myself, I did 19. Why can't I do two, three, four, five, six, right? So, and, you know, I had some guilt with that, uh, which mm-hmm. can come with people who, and in my, in my day, it was a relapse, but I know it's reoccurrence or a lapse. But, you know, for me, I felt really bad about that. And then luckily for me, um, there's some people, good people in this program. And one of, one of the good friends came up to me and she said, you didn't lose that time. Because when we go back out or we use again, we think we got to start all over right? In some sense, you do. You have to restart the process. You have to, you know, turn the clock back to zero. But you had moments of sobriety. So you were able to do that. And sometimes it takes several attempts to get, you know, all of the message and then be what I would consider converted to a program that can keep you, you know, sober. And so, you know, and I was like very appreciative of that perspective because, you know, for me, it was very difficult to go back in those rooms because I was embarrassed. It's like, here's a guy, you know, if you do the math, I should have 35 years now. And, and if you think about it, it's like, oh, man, 35 years, what would that even be like? Right. Well, you know, 35 minus four and a half, I'm still there as far as time of sobriety. But, you know, I got a little bump or a hiccup along the way which is okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was very hardened yeah. about that when people would go out and do it again. I'm like, loser, you know, because that's my thinking. Like you shouldn't, for me, relapse wasn't part of the program, but I'm, yeah. I'm in the eighties recovery. So it was much more hardcore back then. And the old timers, when they talk, I, I get them. And then when these newer people coming in, there's a different generation and has a different perspective and different challenges I have to respect that. I have to learn how to pull what I've learned over here and then also have what they have to offer because uh, recovery has to change. It has to change and evolve to some degree because we, the younger kids coming in, they're not going to be able to handle an old timer yelling at them and telling them you're stupid and you're not going to make any decisions because <laughs> I'm going to make them for you, which is what I've heard. You know? So yeah, I mean, I think the, the kindness part, so I think one thing that's really nice about a lot of tracks today, um, you know, and I'm saying in general, just coaching, uh, consulting, everyone that's helping people is, you know, to be kind. And the old, and I'm not quite as old, I'm not saying you're old, but like, like I I was, um, my high school days were in the 90s, so we're a decade apart. And, um, but I, you know, I had interaction with people that were a little older and, and I don't, I don't know that I was talking to someone about this the other day. I don't know that the whole beat you down to nothing type thing that, you know, the army does where they take you and trash you until you're nothing. And then they build you back up is quite Mm -hmm. the way, you know, I really believe that we can believe in people. We can be kind to them and 
we can also put boundaries up, right? And not, yeah. we don't have to tear them down to nothing to put the boundaries up. We have to do that. We have to, if they aren't respecting a boundary, we need to put it up. Or if we don't have a boundary, we need to build it, you know, instead of, but at the same time, we want to be kind to ourselves, I think. Um, like, you know, at least for me, I've been reflecting on this, that my justification of my behavior is what, what led me to judge other people. Like the fact that in my mind I'm justifying my behavior or my addiction or whatever I'm justifying. Even today, mm -hmm. if I justify, I can't come up with a good example, but whatever, then it's leading me right into that kind of judgment phase, right? Where it's like, well, well, at least I'm better than that person. Like that's how I'm justifying yeah. it is comparing. Yeah. And then the, the, the problem with that is that suddenly I am actually getting everything that I'm judging for other people, right? Like there's no, there's no help at all in judging. It's just a, a weight. But versus if I am even kind to myself, um, loving myself, then I'm not like, like it sounds like that's what you did to a certain extent when you're reflecting. Okay. So I had 19 years of sobriety. Yes, I did have a reoccurrence, but I'm going to be kind to myself, appreciate myself and love myself and understand that, Hey, I'm in a mistake and I was at an emotional low and mm -hmm. here's, you know, some of the reasons why that happened. And this is how I'm going to go forward in life, loving myself and you know protect myself from that a little bit and and not i mean there's probably going to be another emotional hopefully nothing that as bad as you were dealing with then but you know there's things that come up and then you're you've got the the program and everything else especially your new mental state to deal with that you're like oh you know but i know i'm good i know that even though this hurts that i'm good and because that like you brought up the a lot earlier in the podcast the the abandonment side of things you know mm -hmm. like it is it is a very deep feeling when at a young age we come up with a way to be okay like that's our own making mm -hmm. it's like that becomes the foundation for our life where well i'm gonna be okay because i'm good at art i'm gonna be okay because I went, I got sober. I'm okay because I got married. I got, I'm, you know, but when that all like disappears and we just get to the point of understanding, like, I'm okay because I'm me, you know, not because of anything else. Even though there was not someone there for me at these certain times of life when I came up with a way to be okay, that whole idea of trauma, someone explained it to me as trauma is when there's um when we're going through something and there's not someone there to that's emotionally involved enough to recognize at least that we need support so when you think about going way back to the beginning of your story that one year where you're almost alone you, you really feel like that i'm guessing that during that time your mom was really hurting and probably mm -hmm. working through a lot and she just wasn't a, she wasn't for whatever reason emotionally available during that year yeah i mean all it takes is like 10 minutes where that's a problem let alone a year you know i don't know what do you think about what i'm saying i agree with that because as you were sharing some of that in my head i was thinking you know 
you know, we, we heal when we can forgive others, you know, because of the things that they've done to us. And I'll talk a little bit about that in relationship to my mother. And, but one thing that people forget sometimes is that they have to forgive themselves. Like, you know, I, I made a lot of bad decisions and a good chunk of that's during my addiction, made some horrible decisions. Like kids would call me up and say, Hey dad, we're, you know, we're cheering our basketball game at the school. We'd love to have you there. And I'm at the bar and I'm like, I'm having to stay late to work. You know, I'm lying to my kids. And um, because that was more important to me. So I feel bad about that, but I have to forgive myself, but I did have a good conversation with my kids later and tell them that I, you know, I'm sorry for those, you know, those, those years that I was just, you know, non-existent and, and not coherent sometimes when they were there and, and, and it just felt awful, but we, we got to learn to forgive ourselves in among forgiving others. Right. Yeah. And, and love goes a long way. I think we're in, in a time in our lives where love is, is hard to find in some circumstances, which is what we can experience in the world today. It's this, you had a little bit of love there and a little bit more kindness and patience and, and it can go a long way. It's just, it takes work. You know, it's not going to just, you know, go across the street and hug my neighbor and say, I love you. And that fixes yeah, everything. But Love is the absence of conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to find. Yes, it is very difficult. So going back to my mother, when I was going through the, you know, the separation and getting to the point where we were finalizing our divorce, she had started getting sick and um, with, with dementia early on early onset Alzheimer's and it was difficult to be on the phone with her at at the, at first I had no idea what was going on. She compensated and and hit it for years until it got so bad that my older sister had to go up to her home and, and basically take her because some neighbor said that there's something wrong and you need to come up here and get your mom. And that affected my sister in a whole gamut of ways as well um but she would be on the phone and she'd be like i can't help you so this is furthering that abandonment like she had gone through two divorces so who's a better resource than to not only have your mother but also have someone who's experienced it and kind of support and help you through that process and she just basically stopped taking my calls and then she started you know getting more and more you know I guess, deteriorating in the, in the disease and, you know, start sending me these really horrible emails, you know, just, you know, got to a point where I had to call my brother up and said, Dave, you got to tell mom to stop doing this or I'm not talking to her ever again because I can't, I can't go back to that place. So you can see how this is all building up to a place where that's, you know, what I discovered in the, in the last, you know, the first year of my recovery of doing the fourth step. We should always be in a, doing a fourth step. But, you know, that's what I discovered working with my sponsor that I had issues with my mom still, you know. And so, you know, learning from that, it, it, it kind of helped me reposition where I was thinking when I got sober. So she was in the last stages of it. And she's, she had lost her husband. Ken had died. And uh, my brother's like, you should probably come out here. I don't think mom's going to make it much longer. And so my wife and I flew out to Kansas to go because that's where my brother was living at the time. And she was there and we kind of visit the, you know, the 
care center that she was at, which specialized in that type of disease. And, and I just remember she was laying on bed and, and, um, and I just went to her and I said, look, I'm sorry. I was angry at you. I was really angry at you. And I know that you were struggling and basically told her I was sorry and I forgave her. And that made a huge difference, you know, and and I'm assuming if you're, you know, in a religious sense that, you know, inside of us is a spirit and, and hopefully that part of her could hear that and understand it, which is a funny story because we were, we were in a room and my brother goes up and goes, Hey mom, it's David. She's like, huh, (laughs) David, it's David. And I'm like, Michael. And she's like, she didn't register, but there was a picture on the, on the dresser of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We took that over there and she identified that without a hesitation. So yeah, it was, it was just interesting experience to see that, you know, in some small particle, there is a, an understanding that, you know, we do have a higher power. Now that's suggesting everybody should go out and find religion. That's not what I'm saying at all. I want people to clearly understand that whatever your higher power is, that's great. Um, but for me, God is a huge, part of my life and, and my recovery and, and it has maintained and helped me in circumstances to what you were describing earlier, these challenges to get through um, trauma difficulties. And don't get me wrong. The you know last 12 years have not been easy in, in my life. You know, it's, it's still challenging, difficult, but the difference is, is I'm better equipped not only with my core beliefs and, 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 and a God and as well as, you know, the program and utilizing all the tools that they provide. So, yeah, Uh, that sounds really powerful that, that, uh, that, that whole relationship was, I guess we could say restored, like just like whatever was causing, uh, any type of blockage between the two of you was dealt with. And Mm -hmm. like, when you say about the spirit, part of it like that's really where all this is happening right like mm. like yes we i i'm the same as you i i believe in god and and jesus and i mean i i don't think that as i look at my own recovery i don't believe that um like i i really needed the people that he brought him in, into my life and i i believe that he was always wanting to help me but um I guess what I'm appreciating the most about the prior to recovery from him was just that he kept giving to me, you know, um, Mm -hmm. when I needed just to keep me going, you know, like the moments where you're, where you're being hard on yourself where you're not loving yourself. And he's still like earlier when we said love isn't hard to find in the world today, but he's always giving us love and he's love is, um, a very powerful thing. So that's the frame of mind that I think about all this in two. And I, I'm not saying that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to enter into someone's recovery that hasn't walked in it with God to a certain extent. Now, the hard part to admit is when you're taking advantage of that love, you know, and you're not really respecting what he's Mm -hmm. giving you and, and you're hurting other people, then that's a little, that's back to forgiving ourselves. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, at the time I was struggling within my own spiritualness, right? When I was early in my recovery, I, I had a hard time because, you know, the first thing we do is we feel like we've been abandoned by him. 
right? But it's me that had distanced myself from him. And I was doing all these things, you know, they talk about doing meditation or prayer. And I'm trying to do all these things and trying to get back into my personal beliefs and was really struggling. I couldn't, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't notice it. And, and it wasn't until I went to a certain meeting that an individual in there started sharing about her relationship with God. And, and, and she's not part of my same faith, right? She was a completely different denomination and, and she was really expressing some things that she truly believed and that sparked it for me. So sometimes we think that just because one person is belonging to a certain faith or another faith that, you know, that we can't mingle and, and share those experiences because they're all from one person and it comes from God. And, and whether it's through this person or that person, it enables you to, to be able to feel and get a sense that, you know, we're all his children and, and he loves us all. So, and he wants yeah. us to do, you know, be our best. And for me, I needed her to help me be my best. And so yeah. using that person in my pathway enabled me to find what I was missing. Yeah. Amen. I love that. Absolutely. I think that's um, part of what we're trying to, to do here too, is, um, we're not talking to people that are still in the struggle for a reason. It's not, not because we don't love them and appreciate whatever they're going through, but we're talking to people that have been through it because we want to offer that testimony of mm -hmm. wherever you are, whatever you believe. Um, but definitely the people that I connect with the most are Christian, um, in some denomination. Uh, and then we, we have that common ground that we can share and that we can, um, inspire others. in. so that's very good. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. Let's uh, just spend a little bit talking about what your dream is today. I'd like to step into that because you, you mentioned it a little earlier, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what your, what your plans are. Well, um, currently, uh, my wife and I have started a business that's going to focus on addiction and in family support. And one of the things we've discovered that, you know, addiction gets talked about a lot, especially in the news today. Um, you can, you know, we, we joke about it unless you're living in a cave, everyone knows what's going on with the, with the other epidemic in our, in our society with, you know, drug addiction and abuse. And, and so we've, we realized that when you have that individual like myself, and you talked a little bit about that with my mother is that, you know, to this day, I have no idea because she's very private about her own emotions, you know, which is a part of that abandonment when I was growing up. It's really interesting because I have no idea exactly what she was doing during those times that, you know, I was out using, like, imagine your child's going out for the evening, it's partying, he's going to come home drunk. I have no idea. Did he kill someone? Did he kill himself or whatever? So she's, she's going through that struggle as well. And so sometimes we forget that even though that I, I'm the alcoholic in this, this dynamic, there's my mom, my brother, my little sister, and, you know, and other people that I have like friends. So there's like at least seven, you know, five to seven individuals that are going to be affected by this individual. And the amount of content and support for those individuals is way less than the kind of support you can get with treatment centers and things like that with addicts. So we have two, 
you know, products that we're developing that are going to focus on the, the person who's in sub- substance addiction and in those who are family support that have that loved one that is struggling, whether in a new journey or actively engaged in their addiction or in long ter- long-term recovery. So, and um, we're meeting with a lot of good people in this area and, and uh, partnering up with treatment centers and, and getting as much feedback and focus from those individuals as we can so that we can make sure that when we do deliver this product, that it's going to be something that's going to assist and help everyone that's struggling in, in just about every place. So we're excited about it. It's, it's stressful. It's, it's a lot of work. and Yeah, when you have a side side gig it's never easy it's yeah a put, no it's no a... i'm working a day job my wife's working a day job and you know nights and evenings and and trying to get stuff you know partner with good people and communities and legislation and things like that it's just it's really really a lot of work a lot more than i thought it was going to be when i went into it i thought oh, we'll just you know build a presentation we'll talk to a few people and we'll be ready to go and now it's been it's I'm been it's very, very educational and, and really has opened up my eyes and and the amount of difficulty and struggle people are going through. I agree with you. Like even for a family of addicts, which often happens, you know, like I've talked to a lot of people where it's like the whole family's got addiction. Right. Um, or or at least in their past, um, you know, like one will get a little bit further and they're better and they think that this person's okay and then they find out oh, oh no this person needs some assistance so that's that's really hard on them if if that's the person that's kind of been supporting them through their life and then suddenly so there's all this complexity to support within families so really glad that you're looking at that all right well thank you very much for sharing michael um appreciate your time today no absolutely thank you for having me our pleasure Thank you for tuning in. And to stay in touch, email us at info at businessaddictspodcast.com.